My first reaction upon seeing the TPP provisions was that USTR must have made the unusual political calculation that it would be a good thing to do to take a sharp stick and poke both Senator McConnell and uh, Senator um, Hatch. Hatch because of the biologics and, and McConnell because of the tobacco carbot. It just was a, a surprising way to smooth the way on the Hill. Um, certainly the provisions as they came out really did nothing to strengthen Republican support for the agreement. The financial services problem appears to stem directly from the administration's decision to wrap up the negotiations last October, frankly, before the negotiations were really finished. Financial services pitted the United States against the United States, USTR versus Treasury. USTR had placed a high priority on TPP and having no data localiz localization requirements for any sector. The Treasury very much wished to maintain uh, ability for the bank regulatory agencies to have US access to data. And uh, frankly, Treasury won that dispute, and USTR was left in the rather uncomfortable position of coming back with an agreement that accomplished some things for, regarding data flows and, and not others. So subsequently, Treasury and, and the regulatory agencies have thought about this issue more. And as Ambassador Froman mentioned, they now have in mind a paradigm for going forward that appears to address these concerns. They can still regulate even if the data is on the other side of the border. Uh, frankly, it would have been nice if the administration had done that homework in advance. The biological, biological pharmaceuticals have, um, they have received 12 years of data exclusivity in the United States under statute since 2010. The agreement ends up providing between five and eight years, and I'm not going to go into all the details of how that might sort out. Um, but it's understandable why other countries might prefer to have the United States bear most of the costs for uh, biologics, research and development, and regulatory approval. Uh, and then if they can get the generic versions uh, more quickly, that looks good to them. Um, but of course, the US industry very much wants the broader global community to help fund the R&D costs. This issue is really very important to Senator Hatch. He is a, a copyright holder himself and feels strongly about intellectual property issues. Um, the, the Obama administration has uh, somewhat of a credibility problem regarding biologics. Its annual budget submissions repeatedly have proposed shortening the 12-year time frame to seven. And this position was reiterated most recently this, in February 2016 when their budget proposal for 2017 once again shortened it to seven years. So it might be challenging for the pharmaceutical industry and its supporters on the Hill to think that USTR negotiators had been working really, really hard to get 12 years. Then the tobacco carve-out, uh, it will be addressed in more detail by, by Mr. Ula. But my Cato colleagues and I have written about ISDS that it really isn't an essential component of trade agreements because fundamentally it does nothing to liberalize trade. We could see through the past year or more that there was widespread opposition to ISDS among various non-governmental organizations and this was giving a hint that that provision might complicate passage of uh, TPP. What is clear that by turning around and then excluding tobacco from the ISDS provisions, the administration has lost several Republican votes in Congress, and it appears to have gained a total of none. My big concern about the tobacco carve-out is the precedent, precedent it sets for other products in future trade negotiations that might be politically unpopular. And I'm particularly concerned, frankly, about what people in the European Union might wish to do with genetically modified organisms. Why not discriminate against them and carve them out? That's enough of my background comments. Uh, allow me now to introduce the panelists today in alphabetical order. 
Philip Levy is a senior fellow in the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Now, I'm somewhat envi envious of Philip because he has the luxury of working on trade policy issues from 700 miles outside the Capitol Beltway. And since I used to do the same thing for 15 years from Minneapolis, I know how, how much better the world often looks as you get away from the day-to-day -day, uh, machinations of, of what's happening in Washington. So, uh, he, but he's here with us today, and I appreciate that. He does have plenty of inside the Beltway experience. Uh, he, just to mention a few, he has served as a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, senior economist on trade on the Council of Economic Advisors for George W. Bush, and then went over to the Department of State on the policy planning staff for Secretary Rice. He's taught at academic institutions, including the University of Virginia, Columbia, and Yale. He holds undergraduate degrees, an under, undergraduate degree in economics from the University of Michigan and PhD from Stanford. Gear Ula is an international trade lawyer working on working with JT International as the, at the firm's global headquarters in Geneva. That means he also has an outside the beltway perspective, perhaps conditioned somewhat by close proximity to the WTO. Prior to joining JTI, Gear worked for the European Free Trade Association Secretariat in Geneva, where he supported the negotiation of trade agreements and provided technical assistance. Gear is a Norwegian national who holds a law degree from the University of Bergen, a beautiful but often somewhat rainy city on the west coast of that country. Velkommen til Kato. I won't try to speak any more Norwegian. <clears throat> Clayton Yeider serves as senior advisor to the law firm Hogan Lovells. It's only fair to admit that he has had an influence on me. I served in several role, he served in several roles at USDA and USTR in the 1970s, which was before I knew him. But then in the early 1980s, I was working in the Senate, and uh, it was not hard to become acquainted with him because he was the CEO of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and the agriculture committees on the Hill were in the process of trying to reauthorize the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. He had clear views and he articulated them. So uh, the next thing I knew after that, Bill Brock decided to retire as US trade representative. So President Reagan turned to Clayton for some help in the trade policy arena. When he became ambassador in July of 1985, the US dollar was very strong relative to other currencies and US exports were suffering. In the midst of uh, that doom and gloom, which uh, frankly is not all that dissimilar to the situation we have today. Clayton's message to those seeking protection from imports was basically, cheer up. This large volume of imports is not the end of the world. Rather, it gives us a lot of leverage as we talk to, the, to other countries about the, the need to liberalize, to open all our markets. And he did indeed negotiate a lot of liberalization with other countries. Um, he was instrumental in starting the Uruguay Round in 1986 and then successfully concluded the US-Canada FTA in 1988. After improving the trade picture, he shifted to the Department of Agriculture where he served two years as secretary for President George H.W. Bush and then moved on to a stint as chair of the National Republican National Committee. I'm a bit younger than Clayton but have been involved in many of the same issues and I have to admit, I've been much impressed. Given how I tend to follow around in his tracks, I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised at a conversation that I had one fall a few years ago at an Oktoberfest barbecue, grilling bratwursts in my neighborhood. Okay? A new neighbor came up, and I was visiting with him. And he asked, basically, what do you do for a living? Well, trade policy, mostly. He said, hmm, you might know my father-in-law. And I did. <laughs> so I, I, I really do have a hard time escaping Clayton's influence. Clayton holds BS and PhD degrees in agricultural economics, as well as a law degree, all from one of his true loves, the University of Nebraska. Two other noteworthy items. One is that he serves as a valued member of the advisory board of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. The other is that he was honored by the Washington International Trade Association with its Lifetime Achievement Award in 2014. He concluded his ex 
his acceptance speech with this exhortation. Never give up working toward trade liberalization. Never give up. Perhaps none of us will ever completely escape his influence. Mr. Ambassador, the floor is yours. Dan, thank you so very much. That was just a wonderful, wonderful introduction. Thanks to Dan Eikenson, too, for inviting me to come over and participate in this program. Uh, I'm going to try to do my part uh, uh, fairly quickly to stay on schedule and not uh, take time away from my colleagues up here. Uh, I would like to say uh, two or three things with res uh, in response to what has been uh, said already this morning and then move on to what I'm supposed to be talking about here. Uh, first of all, in terms of uh, uh, does uh, TPP justify congressional approval, uh, you'll discover that my uh, answer is a resounding yes, uh, with more enthusiasm maybe than uh, uh, has project been projected by some of the people here uh, thus far this morning. Uh, and I say that notwithstanding the fact that we have two, two presidential candidates who are taking the opposite view, including one that is the presumed leader of my uh, uh, Republican Party today. And all I would say to that is that, uh, first of all, uh, candidates, you're both wrong, uh, dead wrong. Uh, and secondly, to the members of the press who are here, I wish you'd t uh, begin to do your jobs and ask them the questions that have not yet been asked thus far. And that is, if you don't like the uh, TPP agreement, uh, tell me why. Uh, you know, please explain your position. Just what is it about TPP you don't like? Uh, do you just want to tear it up uh, without uh, understanding the consequences? And so you better defend that. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, there have been very few hard questions like that uh, from the press with either candidate thus far, and I think that's uh, uh, most unfortunate. Now, with respect to uh, the, the uh, Cato analysis here, there are a couple items where I would have shaded it a little bit differently, and, and maybe, uh, uh, Dan, you guys are correct and I'm wrong, uh, but uh, I was a little disappointed in the market access uh, uh, provisions. I would not have graded them as high as, as you all did. Uh, I thought we were lacking in ambition uh, in market access. Uh, I particularly watched the uh, agricultural parts of that where we certainly could have done much better on dairy, for example, with both Japan and, uh, uh, and Canada. Uh, and the, um, you know, the same thing is true in other market access. My original demand in that area where I, uh, USTR, on leading that negotiating team would have been a whole lot uh, higher and more ambitious uh, than it was. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, you know, I will always come to the point that President Reagan made during my tenure, which is just as applicable here and which... Uh, uh, Derek missed, I think, this morning uh, in his uh, emphasis, and that is, uh, uh, you know, better moving forward than standing still, better moving forward than moving backwards, uh, and TPP moves uh, market liberalization forward. Uh, and the way President, Labor, uh, President Reagan used to put it is that, you know, get all that you can, but at the end of the day, remember that a Half a loaf is better than no loaf at all. Uh, and uh, if you evaluate TPP as half a loaf, and I think most of us probably would, uh, maybe some of us would make it two-thirds and some of it one-third, but nevertheless, uh, that's better uh, than nothing at all. And uh, I firmly believe it would be a big mistake to have nothing at all. The other uh, point which I think you guys that... Uh, at Cato underestimated was the value of the sanitary phytosanitary provisions uh, in this agreement. Uh, it is true that in uh, these very difficult food safety kinds of issues, one can take these cases to the WTO because it has excellent sanitary phytosanitary provisions that we put in during the Uruguay round, 
uh, as a matter of fact, at the ex uh, insistence of the uh, of the U.S. Uh, but that pro th those provisions move slowly. Uh, they're a lot faster than they used to be. But nevertheless, dispute settlement in the WTO is a relatively slow proposition. I don't know how fast it'll be in TPP, but I hope faster than the WTO. And if so, you're likely to see uh, companies, or, or rather countries rather, using uh, uh, these SPS provisions uh, in, in uh, the TPP rather than going to the uh, WTO. <clears throat> and then finally, I wanted to make two other quick points here and, and then move on to the politics. One is that one advantage of TPP that really got no mention at all until just the tail end of the last panel discussion is the advantage of being on the inside of a trade agreement rather than on the outside. The benefits, of a, if you will, of a preferential treatment. Uh, with TPP, the U.S. is going to be on the inside. Uh, and that's a lot better than being on the outside looking in. Uh, and, uh, you know, we should not underestimate that. Look at the benefits in NAFTA, which is another agreement that people supposedly want to throw out now. But look what we've done to develop North American business enterprises, not U.S. or Canada or Mexico, but North American business enterprises who have a huge advantage and international competition over the rest of the world because they're on the inside rather than the outside of, of NAFTA. And then second, my other point here is U.S. leadership. We haven't talked about that a lot today, but I think that's really important in the TPP context. There is only one country that can lead what we would call the Western world, and that's the U.S. Uh, and TPP is an opportunity for the U.S. to exercise leadership in Asia. And these kinds of opportunities don't come around very often. Uh, you know, we need to take advantage of it. We've been sitting on our hands uh, for a number of years now in terms of, uh, of demonstrating the ability of the U.S. to lead internationally. Uh, we've backed off instead of uh, asserting ourselves, and that needs to change, and it needs to change badly, and we need to get that done. Okay, to the politics, and I'll do it quickly. Uh, uh, first of all, if there's to be any chance of getting this done between now and the election, uh, which would contribute to uh, the uh, Obama legacy for that, our president's eight years in government, um, there are going to have to be some tweaks to TPP uh, as an absolute necessity. And my two colleagues are going to talk more about the tweaks, and I won't do that here in terms of the tobacco carve-out and what we might do on, on uh, the pharma provisions uh, and biologics. Uh, but those have to be resolved. Uh, and this administration, in negotiating TPP, um, uh, insisted on some provisions in these areas that uh, trouble a lot of us uh, and trouble too many people in the in the U.S. Congress uh, for TPP to be uh, approved, in my judgment, uh, uh, between now and the election. So the first imperative uh, would be to make those changes. I don't know whether the votes would be there even if those changes were made, uh, but in the absence of, of uh, fixing those issues, and Ambassador Froman indicated this morning that they're working these issues. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, but they're going to have to work them harder, uh, or there's no chance whatsoever uh, that this uh, uh, agreement will be approved by the Congress uh, between now and the election. I still think the chances are between slim and none. Uh, but uh, uh, nevertheless, let's, you know, if the administration is, is really uh, – uh, going to try to have this be a part of the president's legacy. Uh, they need to get off their derriers and, and get this uh, uh, these changes done. Now, uh, uh, assuming that we move beyond that, then the next question is: Can you get approval of uh, TPP in the uh, in the lame duck session? And uh, that's an interesting question uh, because it may depend a lot on on the election outcome, not only in the presidential uh, race, uh, but in the Senate and House races between now and then. Uh, normally, I would say that the, there would be little chance at all of approving TPP or any other trade agreement in a lame duck session because it's too short. Uh, 
how do you take up tough, complicated issues uh, in a session that that's short? Members of Congress have just gone through tough election, uh, a tough election cycle. Uh, they're tired. They want to go home. They want to do their Christmas shopping. They want to spend Christmas holidays with their family. They don't want to talk about TPP uh, in the uh, post-election uh, period. But they might. And the reason they might is because there may be some shifts in control, not just in the executive branch, but maybe in the, uh, uh, in the legislative branch as well. And then you've got to say, irrespective of how those come out, whether members of Congress and the administration might say, uh, is this a good time for a little bipartisanship uh, in order to get a really tough issue off our agenda and start the, the next year uh, fresh? You know, shouldn't we have a clean slate going into 2017? And if that's so, wouldn't it be nice to get this issue uh, off our backs in 2016? And the only opportunity left to do that uh, is in a lame duck session. So don't write it off completely uh, because there may be some interesting bipartisan politics that could emerge in a lame duck session and get it done then. If that doesn't happen, and I think you'd have to say the chances are well over 50-50, that nothing will happen until after the first of the year and you have a new government, uh, then what do you do? One of the risks, of course, is that uh, then it spills all the way to 2018 or it just dies on the vine uh, because people get tired of waiting and uh, other countries in particular get totally frustrated with the United States and say, what kind of leadership is this? Uh, you know, you ask us to get approval of our government's a, a TPP agreement. Uh, politically, we've had to bite those bullets and they haven't been all that tasty. Uh, you don't even want to do that in the U.S. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, you need to suffer the consequences in terms of Asian leadership. Uh, I think there will be a lot of that argument made if things spill into 2017. Uh, and maybe beyond. It's going to be difficult for the incoming administration, which has to put a new government together, which means probably a new USTR uh, and all the, the uh, entire top negotiating team. Normally, it takes an incoming president close to a year to get his whole team in place and functioning effectively, uh, which means that if th this spills into 2017, it could easily spill into 2018, which is not a happy situation. Uh, the answer to that has to uh, come from the, uh, the people who would benefit most from this agreement, and that would be the commercial entities, uh, agricultural and non-agricultural in the U.S., who have considerable amount to gain from this. And I think they would have to next January say, look, guys, we cannot wait till 2018. This has got to get done now. We'll give you all the support to get the votes in Congress to have it happen. So there may be a good chance of getting it done in early 2017 if it spills that far, but that will only happen uh, if the business community and the agriculture community weigh in in a big way and make it happen. And I'll stop right there. Well, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, um, and especially to get to speak after Ambassador Yoder. And, and, and I find myself in agreement with him on an awful lot of things, including I would like to see the TPP to pass. I think he gave, fortunately, I don't even need to do this because he gave an excellent description of many of the reasons why this is so important. Um, I might be even more skeptical than him about the prospects for passage, um, although I, I agree with all the challenges he identified. I guess I would note that we've had repeated statements in the discussion about the TPP that it's, it's really important that it passes, and I agree with that. But that's not a plan for, for getting it passed. Saying something is vital is not the same thing as having a strategy. So if you want to visualize this, imagine that we're on one mountain peak and we see another mountain peak nearby and say, we, we really should be over there. Great, accepted. But how do you get there? There's a sort of deep valley in between, and, and what do you do? So I wanted to sort of come back to some of the points that, that uh, the ambassador uh, sketched and say, you know, what are these steps? How would this actually happen? And, and use that to justify why I have 
um, somewhat additional skepticism on this. Um, well, the steps are laid out for us in Trade Promotion Authority. We know sort of how you pass an agreement like this. It starts in the House Ways and Means Committee, needs to pass the House Ways and Means Committee. It needs to then go to the House floor, then Senate Finance, then the Senate floor, if you get everybody approving, and you have some protections that in the Senate, for example, you no longer need to worry about a filibuster. So if everyone approves, there you've got your ratified trade agreement. Um, it's a bit of a challenge to analyze the timing on these things because the TPA lays out often restrictions on the executive more than it does on Congress. It'll, it does some. It will say, here's the sort of maximum time period that the House Ways and Means Committee can take to examine this agreement. We've already blown way past all of those things that you know, the, the House Ways and Means Committee could take up to 45 legislative days. I'm not sure we have 45 legislative days left in the year, and that's just the House Ways and Means Committee. So, and the other challenge in analyzing any of these things is, it is there's a difference between improbable and impossible that when it you know, comes to Congress, if there is the will, if you have a majority that's eager to do something with some of the protections included in TPA, blocking things like filibusters, there's very little limit on what they could do should they get it together. But here's why this is uh, problematic. So one reason we all end up with a focus on the lame duck when we try to imagine scenarios where this would get passed is if you look at, say, the House calendar, and it's available online, um, you see they're not around that much, that they, they meet until about mid-July, and then you start having conventions, and you have elections. They come back, I think, for a little bit in September, and at the moment are scheduled for two weeks, I believe, later in November. Um, now, my understanding from people who have worked the legislative side of getting trade agreements passed is if you look over the last decade or so and say, what's the quickest one of these things has gotten done? They'll point to some less controversial agreements, say, that one, that we managed to do in three and a half weeks. That's if it's uncontroversial. So that, the House isn't even scheduled to be around that long. Plus, we're sort of assuming that this would be the major focus of what they do. You may have frequently in a lame duck session, there's, say, budgetary issues that people sort of kick down the road that need to be dealt with. Just as um, there might be a reconsideration of whether you should uh, address a trade agreement if you're looking at an upcoming change, you could have a reconsideration of whether you should put forward, you know, pass and confirm a Supreme Court nominee, um, depending on what happens. But that's occupying the same legislative body. So will Congress be around for that period of time? Um, and will it have, of the time it's around, will it have enough to devote to trade agreements? Additional issues. It's worth remembering as background just the narrowness of the coalition in support of trade. And the last real measure we had of this was the TPA passage a year ago. In the House, you had, uh, I think it had 218 votes, so just what you needed for passage. <coughs> and of those, I think it was 190 Republican votes and 28 Democratic votes. This is why I wonder a little bit when we talk about sort of a, a bipartisan surge to support this. That would be a real novelty in terms of, of where we've been on this. Um, so I guess that's, those are two of the things that I would also sort of note as obstacles. Um, one, that you really have not had great congressional support from the Democratic side. So there, there was a time, um, particularly when the ambassador was USTR, when you actually did have a sort of a centrist coalition from both sides of the aisle that supported these things and came together to do important and necessary work. We have not had that for a while. We've had a partisan split, and the president has not been able to rally his party um, for, for these votes. On the Republican side, you have, as the, the ambassadors sort of pointed out very well, you had a series of objections. When they voted for TPA, they were saying, I see the potential for having an agreement that would really do good things. Then they sort of voiced a bunch of concerns, and I liked uh, the idea that this sort of seemed like a sharp stick um, in terms of the response. It was by no means a master class in sort of building and maintaining congressional coalitions. Um, often, I think, the way the TPP was negotiated, there was clearly an enormous urgency to get it wrapped up, that, um, and perhaps that was what motivated things, but 
there seemed to be much more eagerness to proclaim the most progressive trade agreement ever than there was to solidify what had been a very narrow coalition in support. And that coalition, you can lose people off of it. You had no room to lose people, but you can lose some because of things like tobacco or financial services or biologics. You, if you're doing this in the lame duck, you can lose some to a principled objection, which is simply saying it's not right that Congress move major pieces of legislation like this in the immediate aftermath of, of an election. I don't know how many you lose, but you had room to lose essentially none. Um, so I think these are some of the major concerns. On top of the question, has the administration even done um, what it needed to to win back the support of key members like Chairman Hatch? I want to move on then. So say I have real skepticism. I don't see the path where this gets done in the lame duck. That the oh, final point on this before I move on. Has anyone been watching how things have worked among Republicans in Congress lately, like in the last year or two? You know, the honor thy speaker, that kind of stuff. They, it has not exactly been a group that has sort of fallen into line, saluted, and done whatever was necessary. So. It, which this is what comes to mind for me when people talk about how, okay, we'll get right past the election and everybody will immediately do what they're supposed to and they'll realize what's necessary and um, they'll support this. Um, it has been a fairly fractious group. Um, and so I believe there would be large numbers of Republicans who would feel that way. I don't think there are 218 of them. Um, and so I think that's a real challenge. So let's suppose we move beyond. And here's where I'm notably more pessimistic than the ambassador. Um, so. He quite rightly noted that more than just the presidential election matters, but let's start there. Um, Donald Trump this week was talking about trade in, uh, to, my, to my mind, a very um, misguided fashion, and I think the ambassador is exactly right that he needs to be pressed on detail, saying that something should be better um, is insufficient. But um, he certainly does not seem inclined to, to be advancing this in rapid order. Secretary Clinton, who had previously supported the TPP, um, will find herself in in a tough position even if we stopped the conversation now. And I fear that it, her situation is going to get worse as the campaign progresses. She'd find herself in a tough situation now because she's said she does not support the TPP as it stands. And some of the criteria that she's set for improving it are exceedingly difficult. So identifying things such as um, currency manipulation, Currency manipulation, as Derek Scissors alluded to, this is highly problematic. Probably the best you could possibly hope for in terms of getting a restriction on this, since this gets to the core of what countries do with monetary policy, the best you could hope for is a sort of side agreement that states good intentions on everybody's part and a move for transparency. Well, that is what Ambassador Froman delivered. Um, that is what they came out with. So if she declares that insufficient and says, I need more, she set herself a much higher hurdle than, for example, Bill Clinton faced when he was going to reverse himself on his NAFTA opposition. Um, so she's already ruled some of that out. Addressing things such as rules of origin on autos, these were key elements of the agreement. That was a big part of what Japan thought it got out of this agreement. So that would involve really opening things up completely. This is not a minor addendum. Um, the other real problem, I think, so two problems that the Secretary Clinton would have were she to ascend to the presidency. Uh, one of them is that she uh, would likely be told, even if had she emerged unscathed from the rest of the campaign, that, Madam President, you essentially have 18 months to get done the big things that you want to get done in office. That th this is your time period. Focus on that. Does she want to make one of those things a a TPP agreement which would alienate labor support. And it's hard to say even that it splits the Democratic Party right now. It unites the Democratic Party in opposition. So it's, and you, she might be facing one or both houses that were under Democratic control. Otherwise a good thing for her, but not good on the TPP. So that's a challenge. The final challenge that I'll note on this is as the campaign goes along, I think what you are going to see is Donald Trump, we've already seen it this week, pressing her on the sincerity of her opposition and trying to pin her down. And the concern is that we will move towards a read my lips, no TPP kind of commitment as they sort of fight this out across battleground states in the industrial Midwest. Um, so that would, uh, that would pose real challenges. As a guide for this, and I'll close here, um, 
you know, what's the best sort of historical example we have? I think when President Obama was elected in 2008, a number of his supporters who were sort of pro-trade and, and um, multilateralist uh, had visions that three pending trade agreements, Colombia, Panama, and Korea, would be ushered through in the sort of lame duck session exactly so that you'd have a clean slate, you wouldn't have to deal with these things, you could step in. Those arguments sound extraordinarily familiar to me. And so this was late 2008 that these were all supposed to slip through. Um, they were ultimately passed in the fall of 2011 um, after a, a great deal of uh, arm twisting that came later. To me, that's probably the best and most optimistic model that we have. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So I'm standing between you and lunch, but I'll try to make it as pleasurable as possible. And um, thank you very much for the introduction earlier uh, and uh, the opportunity to speak here today. There have been several references to tobacco and a tobacco carve-out, and in this presentation, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background to what this is all about. Um, what does it mean, and why is this so important? Um, so. Coming from JT International, that stands for Japan Tobacco International, it might not be a surprise that I'm going to tell you why this is a really bad policy. So, we repeatedly hear that the tobacco industry is abusing the ISDS system uh, and that we're stifling the uh, um, government's ability to uh, introduce tobacco control policies. It's also alleged that um, some governments don't have enough money to pay for the legal fees to defend themselves against INSDS claims from the tobacco industry. And uh, therefore, we are viewed as a big user, or rather, abuser of the ISDS system. Well, what is the reality? Tobacco is one of the most regulated um, um, products in the world, uh, but in real life, the tobacco industry has not used the ISDS system very much. Actually, just in two cases. These two cases are against what has been, could be described as very extreme regulations for any other sector, but sort of passes down the line for tobacco. And uh, we see that these regulations are in general not based on science and evidence, which are good hallmarks for good regulatory practices. Since the commencement of these disputes, one of them have been dropped on procedural ground, the case between PMI and Australia. So in real life, there's only one tobacco-related ISDS case left. The remaining 694 cases are against uh, uh, countries by other industry groups. So is 0.3% of the caseload that is tobacco-related really an abuse of the ISDS system? I don't think so. Then, the claims that countries don't have enough money to defend themselves against tobacco industry um, uh, claims. Is that really true? Let me give you a little bit of background. The tobacco industry pays $15 billion a year in taxes excise taxes and VAT to the uh, TPP countries only, $15 billion. So in the TPP, there is a little bit of money coming from the tobacco industry itself that could be used for whatever they want to do, for instance, uh, uh, protecting themselves against those not very numerous ISDS cases. In addition to that, uh, Bloomberg and Gates have set up a fund uh, which uh, has several million dollars, which allows governments to tap into it in case they would be challenged by tobacco industry. On that basis, I think it's safe to conclude that there is money to um, uh, uh, mount a le legal case against the tobacco industry if a country would like to defend extreme regulatory proposals. The big gain touted by the um, supporters of tobacco exclusion is public health. Now, let's play a little game of where's Waldo for trade experts. 
I challenge you to look up on the slide where you have the tobacco exclusion in the background, and I would like you to find the words public health or even just health mentioned in the tobacco exclusion. They're not there. So, the drafters of the TPP tobacco exclusion have gone to great length um, in order to um, list all possible activities that tobacco companies are involved in, uh, such as inspection, record keeping, reporting requirements. All of these activities are apparently of such a uh, threat to public health that they should not be protected by ISDS. Really, it's obvious that the goal has, been to, uh, has not been to bring about any public health benefits, but rather to introduce a measure which gives a lot of headlines and an allure that the government is regulating for the greater good. But uh, in reality, this measure doesn't achieve anything ex except for excluding one industry from ISDS. What does this all mean? I'm not sure. Um, uh, what does it all mean that um, the tobacco industry doesn't have access to ISDS? There are a number of protections in the uh, TPP investment chapter, uh, which gives uh, companies the possibility to challenge governments directly. We have heard from some uh, members of Cato that are not all too happy about uh, these protections, but they're there. The fair and equitable treatment means that um, um, industry can uh, defend themselves against biased and discriminatory regulations. And tobacco might be controversial, but why? Uh, but we're still a legitimate industry bringing about employment government revenue and a significant amount of foreign direct investment, especially to developing countries. Why should the tobacco industry not be uh, able to defend themselves against biased and discriminatory regulations? I don't know. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but in certain countries, um, uh, tobacco company representatives are fi uh, facing jail time and enormous um, astronomical fines because they're challenging government's uh, introduction of some not very even-handed um, customs valuation procedures. These procedures have even found to be in compliance with the WTO, but the uh, legal challenge still goes on against the tobacco uh, exec executives. Now, why shouldn't we be able to protect people working for the tobacco industry just like any other industry? And so when you open the door for this, who's next? Food, alcohol, mining, right? Another protection in the TPP is about um, transfers. The TPP investment chapter ensures that private companies like ours should be able to transfer capital, profits, dividend, etc., back to the country where the investment came from. It's part of normal business practice, right? It's beyond us why the uh, why legitimate industry, albeit tobacco, uh, should not be able to secure profits for its shareholders by channeling profits back to its owners. Performance requirements. This sounds very technical and boring, but it has a very practical side. Performance uh, requirement could be a policy whereby a government says that all cigarettes should only be made by domestically grown tobacco. This is not how to, uh, cigarettes are generally made. They're made from a hodgepodge of different tobaccos coming from all, the, all around the world. Or you could imagine that a government would say that um, a confectionery industry is only allowed to make chocolate from domestically grown cocoa. Under the TPP, if such a uh, government measure would be introduced, the confectionery industry would be able to, uh, to challenge the government, whereas the tobacco industry would not. This is really not fair. Then, the ultimate form of um, government intervention, expropriation. If you own something, let's say, at a uh, cigarette factory, you have invested tens of millions and you don't really want it to vanish at the whim of a government at any point in time. If you produce cars, ice cream, toys, you have this protection under TPP. If you happen to produce cigarettes, you don't. Why would government expropriation be more laudable for a tobacco factory than, for instance, a car factory without compensation? 
Talking of other industries, who's next? Well, your guess is as good as mine. A lot of industries are controversial, and you see some of them up on the screen here. Some of these industries are even big users of ISDS. So opening the door to exclude an industry from ISDS can have ramifications that were not imagined. The governments that concluded the TPP keep repeating that the exclusion of tobacco from the TPP is a one-off and will not be repeated for other industries. But what if other governments look at the TPP and they take the examples from the TPP and say, hey, this is a great precedent. Now we can start uh, excluding any industry where our population have a pet peeve against it. Who's next? Where will it end? I don't know. As an illustration, I would like to quote Senator Warren, who said the following. I'm glad tobacco laws are protected from ISDS, but what about food safety laws or drug safety laws or any other regulation designed to protect our citizens? So the slippery slope is already there. Anyway, just to conclude, I'd like to remind you that the tobacco industry is not a big user of ISDS. The numbers speak for themselves, 694 to 2. We are therefore presented with a policy based on scaremongering and not facts. This is also a very badly drafted policy. The TPP uh, tobacco exclusion meticulously lists all possible activities that tobacco companies are involved in, but it includes not one reference to public health. We uh, really fail to see why it would be allowed to expropriate tobacco industry property. This does really not do anything to prevent anyone from picking up the habit of smoking or helping anyone to quit smoking. Removing any effective ability to redress for foreign investors open, only opens the door for discriminatory protectionist measures by governments. Frankly, is this a goal that free traders want to promote? And someone will be next. Tobacco is always at the forefront of extreme regulation, and it's easy to sc uh, score some cheap points by introducing policies that get a lot of publicity. But the TPP tobacco exclusion really does not address the issue that it's supposed to remedy. The tobacco industry is a legitimate industry. And the uh, TPP tobacco exclusion leaves us as the only industry with no, uh, no protection. This is not fair. The TPP tobacco exclusion would also not achieve any public health benefit. Therefore, this exclusion isn't entirely unnecessary. And as a last thing, as we are in the US, Let's recall that the USTR went against its own legislature when it uh, agreed to this exclusion. The US Congress explicitly directed the USTR to, and I quote, protect the rights of US investors equally abroad without product discrimination while ensuring all US investors the existence of an effective investor state dispute settlement system. This is in the uh, Senate Finance Committee TPA report. How about that for democratic control of the process? Thank you. Okay, well, uh, when I call on you, please wait for the microphone to arrive so that everyone can hear the question and identify yourself if you would. And uh, then let's uh, focus on questions and avoid detailed uh, commentaries. I will take the moderator's prerogative and ask a first question. Getting to Gear's issue <clears throat> and realizing that the US-Australia FTA does not include a, an ISDS provision, in the hypothetical situation in which TPP was renegotiated to remove ISDS, it would take care of the tobacco carve-out because there would be no ISDS provision. Would the US business community support TPP in that case? Ask Phil. Phil? Well, I, I don't speak for the U.S. business community. My guess is they'd have serious problems with it. There was a real push to get ISDS in, and one of the key characteristics of U.S. agreements is they all build on each other, and they sort of serve as precedents. So I think you'd probably get a lot of pushback to removing ISDS altogether. Well, even, even though they, they, the business community did support the Australia agreement, I recall. But yeah, I, I think they, uh, uh, there's good reason to have a ISDS in uh, TPP. Um, because I think there are times when uh, American companies need that kind of protection internationally. But I fully agree that we should not have any discriminatory uh, activity in there. The, the tobacco exclusion was wrong. 
I have no brief for the tobacco industry. I'm a non-smoker. I've been a non-smoker my entire life. Uh, but I don't want anybody discriminating against them any more than discriminating against anybody else. Okay, thank you. Questions? <clears throat> right here. Mr. Gerwin. Yes, good, uh, hello, I'm Ed Gerwin with the Progressive Policy Institute. I have a question for Ambassador Yoder. First of all, thank you very much for mentioning the fact that our friends in the press need to press candidates uh, much more uh, strictly on, their, on the implications of their trade positions. There's a lot of rhetoric out there that people don't seem to get challenged on. I'd like to ask you a question from your experience as a trade and agricultural negotiator negotiator along that line. Sure. One of our candidates said in a speech in Kansas that the day after he was elected, he would make sure we slashed uh, Japanese duties on American beef. Can you tell us a little from your experience about the practicality of that statement? Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, there's been a lot of commentary about uh, tearing up the NAFTA agreement and starting all over. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, all of this rhetoric is, is just really troubling to me. I think most of it is shameful. Uh, and it's coming from both sides, uh, some of it from the candidates, some of it from the staffers for the candidates. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of loose language, and unfortunately it's getting worse rather than better, or at least it has in the last few days. And I think that's just shameful. The rest of the world thinks we're crazy uh, on these trade policy issues, and I can understand how they come to that conclusion. But to be specific in answering your question, you can't do that. Uh, I mean, we certainly can raise tariffs the following day on Japan or anybody else if we want to, but we pay a price. Uh, I mean, there is no free lunch. Uh, you know, if we do that... Uh, uh, Japan will have the right to retaliate against us, and they would, and they should. Uh, so, uh, you know, we need to uh, honor our obligations. We are a signatory to the World Trade Organization. We're a signatory to NAFTA. We have a lot of trade agreements in, in the world. We ought to honor them all. And when we start talking about tearing them up, uh, that's just uh, nonsense. And, uh, you know, we... We could end up, I was thinking about this last night, uh, you know, if, if that really happened uh, and we went through all of this carnage, uh, you know, I might not witness much of it in my lifetime at my age, uh, but I worry about uh, the carnage that would, uh, would affect my kids, my grandkids, and my great-grandkids. And I'm just appalled with this loose language that is being thrown around today. I would just mention that, to the best of my knowledge, members of the press present with us today have not had an opportunity to interview any of the presidential candidates. I'm sure if they did, that uh, there would be a detailed elaboration of trade policy issues. Mm -hmm. Another question, please. Oh. <clears throat> Hello, my name is Eric Gomez with the Cato Institute, and I've followed the TPP issue a bit generally from a foreign policy perspective for a while. And when we're talking about how the Obama administration is going to sell this to Congress, it seems like, especially within the last year or so, more emphasis has been placed on the, the U.S. needs to be the strategic player in Asia. It's not explicitly talking about China per se, but, you know, everyone who knows about East Asia could probably say, okay, yeah, this is meant to serve as some sort of counterweight to Chinese economic influence. Is this, is this a strategy that you believe will be successful or should it be the way to go um, for, do you think it would be, it would play well with Congress and have a greater chance of succeeding than focusing more solely on the economic instead of the strategic benefits? Thanks. Can I try it, Dan? And uh, Phil may want to comment as well. Uh, it's a really uh, a really good question. Um, you know, personally, uh, I may be showing some of my political biases here, but 
uh, you know, the this administration does not have much credibility uh, on foreign policy issues. I mean, there have not been any, very many success stories. I think TPP may be the most successful of all. Um, uh, nevertheless, as I pointed out earlier, we really do need to demonstrate uh, uh, leadership in Asia because to some degree we are in competition with China for that leadership role. And I don't see China, by the way, as an adversary in trade policy. I never have. Uh, I do not now, and I don't believe that I should in the future. But I do. But I also believe that if they are in the leadership role in Asia, you will not have principles and rules of, of international trade uh, that are as as effective as they would be if we are in a leadership role. Uh, in other words, they're going to be looser uh, and uh, will uh, not have the uh, disciplines uh, that are necessary. So I want TPP to uh, go into effect because that then becomes the base on which we build. And the point I made earlier about being on the outside versus being on the inside is so valid here. It's not by accident that you have a whole slew of countries lining up wanting to join TPP already, uh, and that's important. I think that's one of the great benefits of this potential agreement. Uh, flawed as it may be, uh, it, it's the best uh, 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 eating on the plate at the moment, and as a consequence, uh, you're, you're finding uh, maybe as much, many as a dozen countries who would like to be in the next tranche of TPP negotiations. If that happens, that solidifies the fact that TPP is going to be the foundation of international trade in Asia for us and everybody else. I think that's good, and I think it gets to the point, if you get through that second tranche, and that's a few years down the road, uh, ultimately China may see it. That's to its advantage to join. I I would agree with all of that. I think I don't think the administration's been that coy about saying either we write the rules or China writes the rules. Um, I do think that resonates somewhat on the Hill from those I've I've spoken with there. Um, you asked about the trade-off between that making that kind of a strategic argument versus an economic argument. I think they've handicapped themselves a bit on the economic argument because you had a president who ran for office expressing extreme skepticism about the value of agreements like NAFTA. He, he argued that it cost a million jobs has not actually reversed himself on that, which means that their economic argument has to be, you didn't like previous trade agreements, but vote for this one. Um, that's what, that sort of self, self-inflicted self wound is what then leads him, I think, more over into the strategic argument. Way in the back corner there. Thank you. I just wanted to ask a quick question about... Um, and, and you are? Oh, sorry. I'm Zeke Schumacher, and uh, I guess I'm my own man. Um, so... That's good. <laughs> thank you. Um, with respect to uh, this idea about who's writing the rules of the road, uh, primarily, I think that, that seems to be a sticking point from a political perspective about why we should be engaging ourselves in some sort of international trade agreement from the first place. But... It seems to me that Sparta didn't join the Delian League just because it was the biggest block around, right? And at the same time, you have uh, Russia and China creating uh, alternative venues for trading oil and that sort of thing to, to WTI and Brent and so on and so forth. So why are we expecting China, on the one hand, to sort of step into a vacuum that not executing TPP is presumed to create, and on the other hand, if they do step into that vacuum, why does it necessarily cause a problem if we're hoping that they might join TPP? What's wrong, what's wrong Excuse me, with us joining with whatever multinational coalition or trading bloc eventually forms uh, regardless? If, it's, if the, the ultimate benefit is the economic of the American consumer and business environment. So I'll, I'll start it on this. Um, I think... The you know the U.S. does this because it's in it's, it's in our self interest it's in our self interest to have um, 
sort of stable, uh, a stable political situation in, in Asia. We have huge interests there. It's in our interest to get other countries to lower their barriers. I think when you look, I, I agree with what Ambassador Yoder said earlier, which is that it's not that you know, we are opposed to China. Um, there is a different conception of what commercial regulation ought to be. And the U.S. has a very advanced economy. A lot of the way we interact with other countries in the world it involves provision of services. It involves investment. It involves high intellectual property content. If this sounds familiar from all the chapter headings you were seeing earlier, that's no mistake. It's, this is saying, how do we succeed and how do we do business? If you look at the kind of uh, trade agreements that China's putting forward, they probably reflect more the way that China engages commercially with the world, where they're much simpler. It is just border barriers, and it would do a much worse job of serving U.S. interests. So even from an economic standpoint, we'd be worse off. From the standpoint of proving ourselves a reliable partner to keep the peace in the region, um, it would be very damaging to withdraw. Phil is, uh, Phil is so correct in, in that respect. Uh, as you probably know, China already has a regional trade agreement uh, sort of underway in Asia, which is viewed by some at least as a bit of a competitor to TPP. Uh, that agreement is not really going anywhere at the moment because uh, everybody's, not everybody, most everybody's putting their attention and emphasis on TPP, which is to our advantage. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, if you switch and go the other way and follow the Chinese lead with with their agreement, you end up with a lot less effective uh, uh, rulemaking in the trade arena. In other words, there'll be a lot more games played under uh, under that agreement than will ever be played under TPP. And it's not to our advantage uh, to give other folks a chance to play games because that works uh, uh, to our, we, you know, we like to play by the rules. Not everybody else in the world does. Question right here. Uh, David Orden from Virginia Tech. Uh, this may not be fair to the speakers or the audience, but I'm really struck by the fact that the multilateralism in the WTO has literally barely been mentioned today. And if you think back to the NAFTA and Uruguay round, those two agreements the Clinton administration you know, pushed forward simultaneously, uh, even two or three years ago, I think, there would have been more discussion about TPP in the context of the multilateral negotiations simultaneously or the interface between them. So I know it's late in the day, but I'd like to hear some comments from the speakers about if you think especially about a TPP process that might roll into 2017, 2018, I mean, where is there any WTO window, or is TPP the only trade agreement, leaving aside dispute settlement and so on, the only trade agreement on which the next administration is going to organize the U.S. position on trade? Is there, are there any windows there or any interface between these things, or is the WTO as a negotiating forum just not on the agenda for the next five years? Again, my apologies to the speakers for raising something that could be a day's seminar, not a five-minute discussion, but it would be nice to hear a few comments. Do the, I'll do the best I can, and Phil can supplement, because uh, I'm probably uh, more biased than anybody from having been such a participant in the multilateral process during my days as USTR, uh, particularly in the Uruguay round. Uh, I'm sad about that, as a matter of fact, that... Uh, uh, since the Uruguay round, uh, the uh, WTO process just hadn't worked very well. Part of that is because there's so many more countries in. Uh, you know, it was about 100 when we did the Uruguay round, and man, it wasn't an easy task to uh, uh, herd those 100 cats. Uh, now you've got to herd uh, a lot more than that, almost double, and uh, the uh, negotiators have found that to be very, very difficult. When we finished the Uruguay round, and just give you a personal uh, touch to this, I said that I thought it might be the last round of trade negotiations ever, and uh, maybe I will turn out to be correct in terms of, uh, of uh, successful uh, multilateral trade negotiations. Uh, I'm sorry about that, but it's uh, been happening since then. Our hope with with TPP and with TTIP, or at least the hope of some of us, has been that uh, if you could do TPP and then do TTIP, 
you, you cover a vast amount of world trade. And if you can then fold those agreements uh, into the WTO, uh, you could, uh, you know, in a significant way, uh, improve the uh, WTO uh, and do it without having a, a 180 nation uh, trade negotiation. So I still have some hope for that. Uh, but we've got to get TPP right, and we've got to get TPP approved before we can even think about whether that can be a base uh, for a, uh, you know, maybe a partial WTO negotiation that would move a lot of uh, of that outcome into the WTO. Bill? So I agree with all of that. What I would add, I like this image of, you know, trying to hurt 100 cats the, one of the things that was available, though, in the Uruguay round was you at least had one effective threat, which was that if, if a country wanted to be recalcitrant, wanted to hold out, you could say, well, then you won't be a founding member of the WTO. But that's a one-time trick. And I think this is what we found in the, in the Doha talks, was that you do that, now you've got 150-some countries in there, I think maybe at 160, and now you've got to try to get unanimity. The big split that we saw comes back to this question about the U.S. approach versus the Chinese approach, do you try for sort of high standards and ambition or do you try for something that's sort of much less ambitious and less useful? Countries ended up split and it hasn't been very clear how you move past that impasse. So just as the ambassador said, there's, there is a path sort of from the ground up where you do TPP and TTIP and they come together and then others join. Um, it'd be nice if you could do it from the top down. A dozen years of trying has not been very effective. Well, I'm... I'm not going to try to herd cats. Rather, I'll just say that we we need to conclude now, and and I will provide guidance for how to get to lunch. And I, <laughs> people will will tend to respond well. Uh, lunch is served upstairs, uh, one level on the at the in the Eger Conference Center on the second floor. So take the spiral staircase up. There are restrooms uh, on the way. So on, on the second floor at the yellow wall. I thank you all very much for being here, for your participation. Please join me in, in expressing appreciation to the panel. <laughs>